hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. We're coming off the Defeat the Mandates rally, DTM rally in Los Angeles, California, and I wanted to bring you just a few clips of some of the powerful presentations made before a massive crowd in Los Angeles. But for all of those doctors that know the truth, all of those heart doctors that are watching all of these cases of myocarditis, all of these heart attacks coming into your offices, I am telling you now, be brave! Tell the truth! Wow, that was Del Bigtree of the High Wire. Del has been featured in some of his uh, presentations on the McCullough Report in the past, and he's mentioning vaccine-induced myocarditis, now well-recognized FDA-indicated problem with the messenger RNA vaccines, although data from published studies show it happens with the adenoviral vaccines, AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson, uh, imploring cardiologists to come forward and report this. Uh, we're seeing cases in large numbers in cardiology practices, heart damage, in men, uh, peak age is 18 to 24, but it goes all the way up to age 60 to 70, resulting in uh, heart failure and cardiac death. And we've seen so many uh, working examples of this all over. That was Dell Bigtree on the high wire. Now, importantly, myocarditis uh, has been reported in the children in the teenage years, uh, multiple publications there. Uh, and now recently in children age 5 to 11. So it appears as if the vaccines will spare no child the risk of myocarditis, about 90% in boys, 10% in girls. And I will tell you one more thing. There are a lot of moms out here and dads, but I want to speak as a mom and as a stepmom. You hurt our kids. And watch out because you have never faced the rage of thousands of furious mothers and stepmothers. Wow, that's Naomi Wolf of the Daily Clout, former CNN commentator, and that was absolutely powerful. Naomi Wolf, most people know her, Dr. Wolf, as a more left-leaning liberal commentator, formerly on CNN, all the time. It is absolutely astounding what's happening. Medical freedom and concern over vaccine safety and uh, the defrauding of the federal government by the vaccine manufacturers have brought together the staunchest conservatives and the most liberal left-leaning individuals together out of the same concern. So I wanted to share a couple of clips of uh, leading conservative commentator, former White House advisor Steve Bannon, with Naomi Wolf on what's going on with the data release on the Pfizer vaccines. What did Pfizer know and how are they actively concealing uh, the risks of death and injury with their vaccines from the public and the FDA? So you hear a long lead in here. This is the voice of Steve Bannon on Real America's Voice. And 
Naomi Wolf is uh, very patiently listening to him before she gets a chance to uh, to respond. Naomi, go, go back, and, and I just want to – it's so mind-boggling. And here's one of the reasons it's so mind-boggling. People should know here at the War Room, we, we are inundated. You know, people say, oh, you're not conspiracy. No, we're inundated. We get it all. Okay, it all we, we get it all. We got to filter it, and you know you got to figure out how you do it, and how you go forward, and how you, you know, work the legal aspects of it. Just like Hunter's laptop, we had it, but had to figure out how to, how to do it, how to get it out, how to you know initially have people review it so it was arm's length and they could they could ascertain. So eventually, it becomes something of power. Uh, this is so mind-boggling, and here's one of the reasons it's mind-boggling. Because this was never supposed to happen. It was a federal judge that stepped in and said, no, 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 no. We're going to put these things up now. And, and, and of course, just putting it up doesn't mean anybody's going to do anything with it. You don't see right now, Naomi Wolf, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't see Tom Hamburger and the big Pulitzer Prize winning team over at the Washington Post all over this. I don't see the big investigative reporters uh, unit at the New York Times all over this. I don't see the Atlantic Monthly all over this. I don't see uh, Huffington Post all over this. I don't see any of the people had the pom poms on for Fauci, right? At CNN with all the CNN, the K Cake Squad, wherever you call those guys. I don't see them all over this. I see Naomi Wolf, her small team at Daily Clout, twenty five hundred volunteers from the War Room and two hundred fifty lawyers. That's what I see, and we're starting to see the results come out. And and quite frankly, people or professionals are shocked. I'm not a professional in this. I'm a layman, but when I see it, I'm smarter to look at this, look at this stuff and say. This is pretty astounding. So, it's shocking. So you got lawyers. It's shocking. So where, where? Here's why I'm so glad you're doing it. You know, you, you were called Cassandra by your friends on the left when you first started coming on the show, and you started even before that started to, warning people about this, warning people about this because you admitted, hey, you didn't believe you thought the Whitmer thing was a kidnapping. You thought you thought the 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 the, uh, the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian disinformation. Because that's the side of the, the plug all you came from. And when you start doing this, all your friends on the left said, oh, she's Cassandra. This is all nonsense. It's all lies. This audience hung with you and then volunteered to work with you when you got these documents, when you got the receipts. That's what the, the fault that the, the apparatus can't take the truth. Once people get in, here's the great thing. It's working class and middle class people are putting their shoulders to the wheel here. So what are the lawyers saying right now and where are you headed on this? Because it's pretty explosive so far. Well, first out, you're right. Uh, all of these other news outlets and not our tiny team and our brilliant volunteers um, should be reporting the biggest story of the 21st century. And so I just want to issue an invitation to the New York Times and to the Washington Post and to the Atlantic uh, to open invitation. Come look at our data you know, you report on it too. It's your job to report on it too. We're not going to hoard it. It's not about ego. It's not about branding. You know, come on, step up, be men and women. Take a look at this uh, information. Uh, we will make it available to you and you write your own front page stories. Um, and moving on, because I'm pretty sure they're not going to do that because they took pharma money to and, and government money to be part of the vaccine confidence program and didn't disclose it as you and I discussed. Um, I'm going to move on to my next headline. Uh, it just to answer your last question, I don't know. I can only speculate about why so many respected credentialed people let this appalling violence against our children and the bodies of our people unfold in this massive crime. Um, 
but it will be hundreds of insiders, hundreds of people at the FDA, hundreds of people at the CDC. It will be the head of the CDC. It will be Michelle Walensky. It's not just Pfizer. It's our whole government HHS apparatus colluded with this. So I don't know the answer yet, uh, but I do know that many, many doctors and nurses said because of government policies and because of AMA policies and other licensing board policies, board of health policies, I can't say anything or I'll lose my job. So we know, and I've seen those documents, I've seen the internal documents going from the licensing boards to doctors saying you'll be disbarred for misinformation. So people knew they had to toe this line and not breathe a word of this or they would lose their jobs. I still think there's a lot of cowards out there who failed in their responsibility as as healers and medical professionals, um, but but you know they'll have to face their own consciences. But our government insiders saw these materials, the FDA saw them, and said, "Go ahead and tell the spokesmodels it's to say it's safe and effective. Here are the talking points. Tell the spokesmodels to say take your 16 year old to get injected as soon as possible." I know people who are influencers on social media who got paid to you know talk about their teenagers being injected with the mRNA vaccine. They didn't know that, that this was causing heart damage to kids. Um, they didn't even know the trials were over. And I'm just going to say one last thing. As a mom, I love a 21-year-old man who is a relative who got injected after May 21 and before August 21. That is when we should have been told and we weren't about the heart harms. And I will personally do everything in my power to make sure Rochelle Lewinsky and the heads of the FDA and the other uh, governing bodies here um, have, you know, face justice. Okay. How can people, um, we're going to spend a lot more time with this in the days and weeks ahead. How can people, first of all, how can they get and see your initial findings? You haven't done your preliminary report, but you're putting it up as the team goes. How do people get there? And then if they still yeah. want to volunteer, what do they do? And if they want to support you, what do they do? Yeah, actually, the uh, the teams have been incredibly productive. We've got um, three or four reports up by now on dailycloud.io, and we can send them in a single document over to you guys. Um, and so there's a new report about uh, uh, Team 1 found that there was limited efficacy, as I mentioned. So you can look at that. It's shocking. They knew it didn't work in December of 2020, and they kept going anyway. Come to dailycloud.io. If you want to volunteer, join up. We always need more volunteers. Uh, if you're a lawyer, join up. You click that campaigns button on the right and then you go to the Pfizer campaign. Please continue to support us because we've had to hire wonderful new staffers to deal with the volume of material that we are analyzing, turning into videos, turning into blogs, turning into media reports that other news uh, sites can make use of. And you can find me on Dr. Naomi Wolf on Getter. And thank you. And your thing's on fire. So let's do this, and we're going to regroup over the weekend and kick off next week and go through this even more methodically because this is landmark what you're doing. Naomi, thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Wow. I never thought I'd see uh, arch-conservative Steve Bannon and Naomi Wolf, former CNN correspondent and contributor, now heading up the Daily Clout, teaming up on what is adding up to be basically the crime of the century that is uh, the messenger RNA and adenoviral uh, DNA COVID-19 vaccines being developed and pushed forward in a fraudulent manner, uh, having uh, court-ordered release of Pfizer documents. Now, 
available for all to analyze. Uh, Naomi Wolf's team is well ahead since the huge volume of this is being released. There's a public health and professional review committee. They're having separate meetings. Um, I can tell you that the fact that Pfizer has not pulled their product off the market in a reasonable time frame, if they would have pulled it off in January or February of 2021, it would have been like any other biopharmaceutical that went bad and had safety problems. And, and we know there's been hundreds of these. Uh, things would have been chalked up in history that, listen, they tried a mass vac vaccination program. It didn't work. Uh, but the reality that Pfizer pressed forward, the FDA either knew or should have known that all these documents were being compiled. In fact, Pfizer had hired over 600 additional employees to be handling all the phone calls and safety reports after people were dying shortly after the vaccine or uh, developing injuries and new diseases. And all of this went on uh, in the face of a trusted news initiative, which was an official major media campaign to promote mass vaccination. And Dr. Wolf indicated even more payment programs going out to influencers to continue to promote mass vaccination when uh, the reality was the vaccines weren't safe. And I think we learned later on clearly in the medical literature, they weren't effective, had progressive losses of efficacy uh, uh, regarding two major features of COVID-19, the reason why the vaccines lost their ability to stop the infection and stop transmission are one, the virus mutated from the original wild type of which the vaccines still code against the original wild type. And then two, that the, uh, the vaccines had much shorter efficacy than we ever thought. They appear to only last six months at the most. And 22 studies show waning vaccine efficacy at a six month point of time. And then so all the experts agreed, you must have a shot every six months. I recently, on a series of uh, national, international presentations, estimate based on CDC vaccine administration data, that only 25% of the US public is quote, fully or currently vaccinated. That means uh, the vast majority are effectively unvaccinated. And I received a good question from Dan Bongino in one of the interviews, Dan Bongino at Fox, who uh, openly has, uh, with a chronic condition, has received three uh, vaccines, his wife as well. He asked the question, Doc, how come uh, the immunity only lasts for six months, but, but the messenger RNA is in the body for a couple months, as shown in a study from Stanford, and that uh, the spike protein is in the body for probably over a year, data from Bruce Patterson, who's been on the McCullough Report, how can that be? How can the messenger RNA and spike protein be so long lasting, but the immunity be so ephemeral? And the answer, I believe, is that the body is concealing the messenger RNA and the spike protein, particularly the spike protein in exosomes, phospholipid small packets, as well as this intracellular inside monocytes. The body is trying to get rid of the spike protein and not generating the immunity against SARS-CoV-2, the virus, as we thought. And then I think also the, obs the uh, absolute obvious observations as brought out by Hammond Merchant. Hammond Merchant was a, on the McCullough Report. He has an article out uh, available in the National Library of Medicine citations where he said, listen, 
giving a shot in the arm of any type of vaccination is not going to get secretory IgA, uh, the type of antibody that exists in the sinuses and the oral pharynx, and it's not going to stimulate T cell and natural killer cell responses in the nasopharynx. So giving a shot in the arm is not giving the immunity in the sinuses. And I think anybody listening to this could understand that that makes sense. And what Dr. Merchant said is, why didn't we develop or why didn't the companies develop a nasal mist form of a vaccine? like it's done with other illnesses. A nasal mist, something you would sniff up into the nose to form immunity, makes a lot of sense compared to a shot in the arm. I think everybody could agree with that. So uh, with that, we have a situation where the vaccines, wrong technology, the virus mutated, they don't last long enough, and it's the wrong route of administration for a vaccine for a upper respiratory tract infection. While we're on the, uh, uh, basically, the completion of the Omicron outbreak, what's in the United States, the few cases that we have is the BA2 subvariant, and that's uh, available to you in the NowCast system by the CDC on the website. It's a good part of the website. That means that uh, it's a very mild infection, very few cases in the hospital, record cases, uh, low cases in the hospital across Texas. Many hospitals have zero cases of COVID-19. There still is community COVID-19 treated with the nasal washes of dilute povidone iodine, dilute hydrogen peroxide. We've been over this in the past, half a teaspoon of hydrogen peroxide or three quarters of a teaspoon, uh, uh, half a teaspoon of povidone iodine, three quarters of a teaspoon of hydrogen peroxide uh, in uh, 1.5 cc's of uh, water with a pinch of salt, and then squirting it up the nose, sniffing it back, spitting it out, doing it twice on each side, gargling with the rest for 30 seconds. That is a um, thorough nasal wash. That is probably most effective in preventing COVID-19, the illness, if you've been out and being exposed. And during active treatment, we intensify that to every four hours. With that, we need very little additional therapy, but I did want to let you know that there is therapy out there for those of you very high risk. Many of my patients now are completely unvaccinated. They're seniors, but uh, they haven't taken a booster since November 1st, so they are effectively unvaccinated. And the available remaining monoclonal antibody we have is called beptilovimab, and it's administered 175 milligrams in a 2 ml IV infusion. So it's basically an IV shot. And this monoclonal antibody is injected in there. And uh, it, um, our monoclonal antibody, what's called uh, uh, target binding fragments that bind the spike protein. And in my view, safe and effective high-risk senior should get beptilivimab. So make a few calls around, make sure which urgent care or hospital carries it. If your loved one is in a nursing home or a big senior facility, make sure they have this on hand. I think removing sotorivimab, the GSK product, by the Biden administration was premature because the mutations have gone back to the BA2 predominance, which should respond to the the, um, sotorivimab. And I think it was a giant mistake. On the back half of the McCullough Report, we've got a terrific interview with Dr. Michelle Perrow, from Fairfax, California. She's a pediatrician who specialized in integrative medicine. She's going to give us some contra- uh, uh, some real key pointers about pediatrics 
about COVID-19. She does both office and ER cases. And I haven't really had uh, a big exposure to pediatrics on the McCullough Report. So I was really glad to grab her for a live interview at site at a major scientific meeting. Our music uh, segment for this week was sent in by Armando. And the title of his song is Rise Up. Let's have a listen. And all the crimes and treasons Ah There's a million miles between us Like Jupiter to Venus Rise up Rise up History will be us The people, they will free us Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. I want to put in a big word for healthy cell supplements. The GI tract is not functioning normally in long COVID syndrome. I'm convinced of it. There are multiple studies. We need a much better absorbed set of nutraceutical and vitamin products for long COVID syndrome, and that's Healthy Cell. They have an entire line that's safe and effective, uh, can help people through the long COVID syndrome. I found the best way to use Healthy Cell products is use them every day, not on and off, on and off. Take them every day consistently. The Immune Super Boost, Focus and Memory, and the REM Sleep Supplement all have powerful effects in long COVID syndrome. Go to HealthyCell.com. And in the promo code, type in out loud for 20% off your first order. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Because of COVID-19, many Americans worry about their health four times a day. That's 120 times per month. To minimize the worries, leading nutritional supplement company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost, an immune supplement that contains full effective doses of science-backed nutrients like vitamin C, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea, all in a one-a-day, pill-free, ultra-absorption ingestible gel. It tastes great, comes in a convenient squeeze gel pack, and it's more natural too, without chemical binders, fillers, and coatings. Supporting a strong and resilient immune system can be simple. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Immune Super Boost. That's HealthyCell.com. H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. There are microbes in the air and they're in your house and the Genesis Fogger is the solution. This is a mobile fogger that uses a unique technology to give a non-toxic dry mist to cleanse the air and cleanse your rooms of microbes, whether they be bacterial, fungal, or viral, including SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19. So go to the Genesis Fogger website and use the promo code OUTLOUD for a discount on your purchase of the model and get going with a cleaner house as there could be more microbes on the way. We're concerned about not only the current pandemic, but future ones. So let's get real, let's get loud. On America Out Loud Talk Radio, this is McCullough. 
get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. It's my great pleasure I'm here on site at a major medical meeting, the Environmental Health Symposium that's being conducted at the Lowe's Ventana Canyon Resort in Tucson. And let me tell you what, it's beautiful here. I landed last night. It's sunny, uh, incredibly exciting crowd. I have with me Dr. Michelle Perro. Michelle went to undergraduate at Yale University and then uh, went to medical school at Mount Sinai in New York, one of the top-rated medical schools in the United States. She trained at uh, NYU Belleville, the uh, Bellevue, the really historically important uh, public hospital in New York City, uh, went on to receive many accolades over the course of her career as a pediatrician. She's now in Fairfax, California, and she's developed expertise in understanding how to work with some non-prescription pharmaceuticals, I think for lack of a better term, they're not really nutraceuticals, but pharmaceuticals that have an influence on the blood coagulation system. And the reason why I want to talk to Michelle on the podcast is because there are so many patients post-COVID and those post-vaccination that are developing thromboembolic complications. Michelle, welcome to the McCullough Report. Peter, delight to be here and thank you for having me on. Terrific. Well, let's pick up right with the heart of the matter. We've had two-thirds of Americans take one of the COVID-19 vaccines. The CDC tells us now roughly half of Americans have had COVID-19, the respiratory illness. I have never seen so many blood clots or thromboembolic complications with both. One of the questions I wanted to ask you, is it a matter of dose? So for instance, I saw recently a woman a uh, middle age, a uh, fit runner in her 50s. She had shot one and shot two of Pfizer uh, through the course of 2021. She developed Omicron uh, illness, we presume, in December, and then the middle of January, blood clot shot to the lungs, pulmonary embolus. So the question is, is it a matter of dose that she got one dose of the spike protein with shot one, one dose, and then the respiratory, or is it sporadic? So I'm thinking from what I'm seeing in, in children and, I, and their parents, because you know when you treat children, you treat their family, that it seems that with each progressive uh, shot immunomodulating therapy, which is what I like to call it, the risk of clotting and other abnormalities goes up. Uh, clinically for me, the worst is after the booster, but I've seen bad news after even the first shot. It just depends who the individual is. Um, so yes, it, definite and incremental change with each increasing vaccine. And certainly the data from Israel pushing the fourth shot now uh, certainly supports that. So that's what I'm seeing clinically. And then how about underlying conditions, factor V Leiden, protein C and S deficiency, Mm -hmm. antithrombin 3 deficiency, uh, prothrombin 2021A variant, uh, the MTHFR mutation. Do you think that the patients developing blood clots, at least in some, is driven by predisposition? Thank you for saying that 200% because most uh, practitioners, particularly pediatricians, we're not looking for underlying coagulopathies, factor V light and prothrombin 2A. I know clinically some of those children have those things because they tend to hypercoagulate. How do I know which kids tend to be hypercoagulable? Are kids who, for example, develop, you're not going to believe, is things like uh, cavitations in the dental because of decreased blood flow. That's how I first became aware of it, through a dental process. Now, you know, for those of us practitioners, the mouth is like a foreign object, not connected to the rest of the body. It's in the world of dentists. Hmm, not so not so quick. 
How did I get into that? Two ways. One, through kids getting their wisdom teeth extracted, right? So now you have these pockets, and for those kids who have like undiagnosed factor V Leiden, prothrombin 2A, and the other um, hypercoagulable uh, uh, situations, is that they develop something called cavitations. And because they have decreased blood flow, the blood flow to the jaw, for example, is minimal. And so these kids develop chronic uh, um, decreased blood flow, dead tissue, inf chronic infection, often aerobic. And where those infections sit, these cavitations, sit on the various meridians of your body linked to specific organs. So they may have had their wisdom teeth out when they were 16. They develop cavitations undiagnosed because most people don't know about this. And then 10 years later, they develop a small bowel SIBO or some type of autoimmune disease, Crohn's colitis, and it's on the same meridian. That's how I started figuring out about this hypercritical state and also um, in tick-borne infections. That's the, that's the first time I've heard a, a linkage to vaccination and um, oral maxillofacial, um, uh, dental, periodontal disease. You know, there is an entire literature of periodontal disease related to systemic inflammation, including atherosclerosis and uh, cardiovascular disease. So what's your approach to, let's say, a young adult, let's say it's a teenager, who's taken the vaccine and, in fact, has developed uh, a deep venous thrombosis and, let's say, a small pulmonary embolism? Mm -hmm. Yes. So um, with the practices I've worked with you know, back home, and I was saying I didn't want to develop these protocols because I didn't want to give kids this injection i said no why are we developing these protocols but lo and behold the kids had to get it for school particularly in the great state of california we all know the story so then we had to develop the protocols because we need to protect our children and help them we know we have tools so we're seeing both these microembolic phenomenon and the big ones that you're referring to the more significant thrombolic events so i have had a lot of kids for example with tinnitus right? Common, mm -hmm. super common after the vaccine. And I'm thinking tinnitus. Now, tinnitus is not rare in children, but is it really just a microembolic phenomenon affecting the cochlea? And that's what I think it is. So for example, when I'm treating tinnitus, I'm also putting those kids, especially ones that don't respond quickly, because tinnitus, which is ringing in the ear, is not so easy to fix often. You know, people struggle with that. And it can be awful for children having a roaring in their ears. It's terrible. Um, so I've started using anticoagulants um, with them early. Now that's an unusual topic for pediatricians. We don't think anticoagulation therapy in children, right? It's not like you think childhood anticoagulation, but we do know that the vaccine, what's called the vaccine, does cause these thrombotic events, and we know it causes them from the spike. We also know nanotechnology causes thrombotic elements. There are many reasons why we get these thromboembolic phenomenons from these injections based on what's in them. So I use something called uh, lumbrokinase, which is um, earthworms. They are earthworms. It's been in Chinese medicine forever. Super good. It's a fibrinolytic, but doesn't affect the clotting cascade. And so I've been using that in other issues with biofilms. That's where I've used it, not in thrombotic events with children, but I've treated many kids with tick-borne infections. Those kids have biofilms. You have to break the biofilms to treat the underlying infection. So we use enzymes, and the one I like are the earthworms, lumbrokinase. Using it for years, 
great success because otherwise you'll never clear a tick-borne infection unless you break so, the So, no, to be clear, people aren't eating earth, earthworms. There's no. got to be some type it's of... It's a little cap capsule. It's capsule. a little capsule. And I haven't had any problem giving it to kids. Now, be clear, Peter, I haven't treated thousands of kids right. with this, but quite a few in the past for tick-borne infections, yes. Now, for uh, clot-related from vaccines, you give like um, one cap or two caps twice a day. Mm. Um, I like to give it on an empty stomach so it has the biofilm enzyme anti-clotting effect mm -hmm. and I've been doing that now you know there are other ways to do to um, break down the fibrolytic pathway aspirin certainly white willow bark natokinase various herbs ginkgo biloba there are other things we can use but the lumbrokinase is so effective and it's been standard in Chinese medicine for I think 5,000 years now complementary I, I told you I have a patient who has had this blood clot. She's on a traditional anticoagulant, Xeralto. I also have her on a low-dose aspirin. Would, um, would lumbrokinase be uh, in addition to? I mean, what I'm finding is these thrombi don't dissolve. They, they don't go away, and I'm becoming alarmed as time goes on. Periodically, I'll check an ultrasound. I'll evaluate clinically, and the patients are miserable. They have swelling of whatever affected limb that the thrombus yeah. is in. I mean, these are big clots. You know, I, I certainly would bring it in. Obviously, the standard therapies, which you as a cardiologist are so familiar mm. with, and I'm not because I never had to treat so many cardiac issues in kids before, right? Kids didn't get heart disease. It's unusual other than congenital heart disease. Um, I would bring it in, but my only concern, and as a clinician, you know this, if it is effective, and I think you need to go up on the amount and the frequency of dosing, by the way, for something like that, mm -hmm. as you as it does its fibrolytic activity, what just be careful of those microemboli that break off from these massive clots. And now I wonder if it's a clot that's near the surface. I've seen all those coroner reports pulling out these very solid fibrin-looking masses. Maybe we have to do a physical extraction. We have the surgical removal of these clots, is what I was thinking. It's interesting you, you mentioned it. It's on my Twitter feed for the audience to look at. There is a case report of a woman who developed a large blood clot in the venous system of her arm, the same arm that she took the shot in. Mm -hmm. And now I've seen two patients in my practice, uh, both women, with blood clots in the arm, one with the messenger RNA vaccines and one with Johnson & Johnson about five months afterwards. Uh, in the cases, the vulnerability is what's called thoracic outlet obstruction, mm -hmm. where there's a decreased space beneath the first rib. Mm -hmm. And we can see this in swimmers. The one uh, woman I have is a swimmer. And uh, baseball players, other people who are athletic, tennis players. And so the blood is already, in a sense, having trouble getting out of the arm. And there may be a bit of stasis. Now all that local inflammation, uh, the spike protein, uh, the changes. We know in a paper by Holtkin and colleagues from Stanford, the messenger RNA is in the lymph nodes of human beings for months afterwards. 15 months, I read. Okay, so when I examine kids, and Peter, I still examine children. I would have thought, you know, you actually do a physical exam. That seems to have gone by the wayside. Uh, no, I examine my patients very carefully, too. We're uh, probably about the same age. So. so, but, and what I love to do is look at their lymph nodes, because I've seen so many kids with now persistent axillary lymph nodes. Right. And I'm like, oh, this can't be good. Um, you know, and kids can 
you know, typically have small lymph nodes in the anterior cervical chains and the posterior uh, chains and the occipital nodes after viral infections, and they, and they pee down. They get small, persistent nodes, which are okay. That's not what you see. When you examine the kids who've gotten the shot, particularly the same arm, you see um, multiple adenopathy in the axilla. I haven't found it in the other concerning regions, like above and below the clavicle, because I'm looking. I'm mm -hmm. like, where are these lymph nodes? Because then I know mm -hmm. what's being, where the um, the uh, activation adenopathy is going. And how about in young women, distortion of the breast after vaccination? You know, I haven't seen so much distortion of the breast, but boy, I would not be surprised if that happens because of the lymphadenopathy. The nodes enlarge, blocks blood flow from the breast, and I would be certainly, certainly recommending breast exams, breast massage, and sauna moving lymph because remember um, lymph is a, a passive system so we have to help our lymph systems how exercise movement but the breast doesn't get necessarily a lot of lymphatic drainage so women have to learn how to do that themselves massage and move the lymph get it moving otherwise it causes stagnation and women with breast cancer they commonly have collections of various um, oh, I think thalates and other parabens right in the breast where the where the cancer is. So we have to move this stuff out because it collects. Mm. So I say, ladies, sweat. I tell you what, we've learned so much on this interview so far. I know that at our hospital, there were um, communications that came down from the Department of Radiology and, and mammography units. And we've seen reports elsewhere all across the uh, world that the vaccines do change the mammograms such that a woman listening to this would need to tell the tech they've had a shot and in what arm and at what time have they had one, two, three, four shots. Make sure it's known because it distorts the breast architecture, the lymph nodes. Now we know the messenger RNA is in the lymph nodes for a long time. You know, the, the breasts are a very uh, special and vulnerable place for a woman, particularly for mastitis, swelling, discomfort, and cancer. Peter, so it's why I think it's one eight, one in nine American women will develop breast cancer. I mean, the stats are like horrifying. And the fact that we see these changes, and I bet we'd see them on thermography also, because I worry about all the radiography to a sensitive breast tissue. And although it's not recommended in mainstream medicine, I refer a lot of my ladies to um, thermography. Um, and when you do serial thermograms, and I suspect if we did uh, thermograms prior and after VAX or after VAX one, two, three, four, that we're going to see increased heat. You'll see a therm thermographic changes, and you can monitor them, which is a much less um, radio-intensive procedure, very affordable. I think an average thermogram costs $150, $200. And it's a great way to follow these gals. And I would love to see that data, thermography post and during, pre post during vaccines, especially in women who've had thermograms before they've gotten vaccinated. Many women have them. And so that is a data I'd like to see and that we can follow them serially, but I'm sure there's increased heat because of this, um, uh, you know, axillary adenopathy that, uh, that it persists. I know that Stanford study said 15 months. I suspect it's going to be longer. Well, just to clarify, it was Bruce Patterson in Cell DX with the respiratory infection. Bruce found the S1 segment in CD16 positive monocytes for 15 months after the serious respiratory infection. Uh, Bruce is, uh, leads up in Cell DX. Mm -hmm. He's formerly yeah, yep. at Stanford and um, in, in, in Northwestern. Bruce came on the McCullough Report, and I asked him about his sample bank of vaccinated people, and he says he can find the S1 and S2 segment in vaccinated people 
for as long as he's looked so far. Yes. So we're talking month after month after month. You can, you know, he's collecting obviously the temporal um, mass of samples uh, c continues. Let's just finish about the breast. Dr. Harvey Risch appeared uh, with me on Laura Ingram, the Ingram Angle, and uh, he uh, uh, presented a case, a vignette from the CDC Vaccine Averse Event Reporting System, and it was a breastfeeding mother who ill-advised took the vaccine, and then a few days later, the baby summer suffers a hemorrhagic death. And you can imagine a breastfeeding infant, how rare that would be to have some horrific thing happen to the baby. And uh, Dr. Risch just presented and said, listen, this, here's just a, a case example. In your view as a doctor who looks after children, but probably advises many as they move into womanhood, should a woman ever, while they're pregnant or breastfeeding, consider one of these vaccines? That's an easy, that's very simple, no. No, no, and then again, no. Because number one, I mean, it's not like the placenta protects a fetus from whatever the mother receives. Whatever that mother receives, the baby receives. The placenta is not a barrier. There's an open exchange, right? Absolutely. And then, of course, through the breastfeeding, everything's transmitted to the breast. But also, we know that the vaccine is, um, people who've been vaccinated, transmit spike protein. Um, through their breath, through the skin. It's this right nanotechnology. And I've had a lot of people unvaccinated who develop symptomatology from those around, especially recently vaccinated. Okay, I want to pick up on that. So um, so this is the shedding. This is the most common question yes. I get of shedding. Yes. And all of you listening to McCullough Report who are going to ask <laughs> about shedding, I'm here with Michelle Perro. And Michelle is an expert. She's from California. And I want to hear your clinical experience. What have you seen that you clinically think are legitimate shedding vignettes? Absolutely. Um, and, you know, and I would share with you that I live in an area that's highly vaccinated. So, you know, and so there have been a lot of people around shedding. And I myself experienced it recently vaxxed with a booster friend that I didn't know because if I hear someone's recently boosted, I run for the hills. My own husband had to go into uh he didn't get boosted, but he had to go into the other room for <clears throat> another story, Peter. But anyway, I picked up on this. Um, I got vertigo. Um, and I had to use all the techniques I knew to clear my vertigo immediately after being with her. Never had vertigo. Vertigo spinning for the listeners. And I thought, no, baby. And so I used the various techniques to help clear that spike protein, including things to dissolve spike, things to bind spike, things to clear spike. I did everything. So what did you do? Because people, this is the most common oh, question I get. Sure. Just, I mean, now granted, we don't have large randomized trials. We don't no. have government no. research. The governments are not acknowledging <laughs> vaccine injuries, let alone even shedding. But we're hearing from an expert today, Dr. Perro. What did you do for yourself? I'll, I'll tell you what yeah. I did. And remember, Peter, there was a time where case reports were what physicians read. Remember the case report? Mm -hmm. I would read those with gusto, thinking like, oh, a clinical case. What did you do? So this is what I did. Because I had no doubt in my mind, I got uh, spikes, spike protein. I called it spike proteinitis, spike proteinopathy, whatever you want to call it, from my friend. First of all, I took ivermectin. Okay. Um, and I took it to bind spike. How much? I took 12 milligrams twice a day, and I took it for three weeks. 
Okay. Because my vertigo wasn't clearing. It was getting better, but it wasn't clearing. That was the first thing I did. I took NAC, NAC N-acetylcysteine, the precursor of glutathione, the master antioxidant in your body. I took 900 milligrams twice a day. Okay. Um, I love NAC, and you need a lot of antioxidant to protect you from being oxidized because the basis of all di- disease is oxidation, which is loss of electrons. It's the basis of every disease, autoimmunity, cancer, etc. So I took NAC. I'm a big fan. I took zinc with quercetin. And quercetin um, is, um, helps zinc get into cells. It's a zinc ionophore. And I took a zinc picolinate, which is a zinc that I like as an integrated practitioner. And I took 25 milligrams of zinc a day. I didn't want to do more than that for myself because zinc and copper are in a, a balance. So you don't want to over-zincify because then you could throw your copper out of balance. And you need copper as a metalloenzyme for a lot of reactions in your body. So be careful with that zinc-copper relationship. Some people say take 50 milligrams of zinc a day. Maybe you get away with it, but I started with 25 knowing about the copper and I didn't want to offset it. The quercetin, I took about 200 milligrams twice a day. You can take way more than that, but that's what I started with and seeing how I did. Okay. I did vitamin D. Uh, I take vitamin um, D with K2. I never take vitamin D alone because it can offset calcium. I took uh, 10,000 a day. Why? Because it's a, it's a hormone. It's great for immune function. I just decided to alert my body that it needed some assistance. All right. I didn't feel like I was getting COVID. Like, like, how did I know I wasn't getting COVID? Because I didn't have the things I see with the initial onset of COVID. Most of my patients who first get COVID get uh, brain fog, fatigue are the initial symptoms is the brain fog and fatigue. We're not seeing the anosmia and all that we saw initially. And then they start getting the other symptoms, the profound myalgias. So it's when they start getting that weird brain fog and the fatigue, then I know they're going to get COVID. I didn't have any of that. I just had the vertigo. That is such an important encapsulation. Now, these are suggestions. Again, not proven, but I will anticipate we're years away from uh, conclusive studies uh, to even nail this down. Now, what have you seen clinically in terms of a shedding vignette? A patient comes in and tells you something. What have you seen that's most tractable yeah. and most significant? Um, I'd have to say of all the things I've seen, and this is mostly of the moms of my patients, is that abnormal menses. And the women report um, those who've been exposed to vaxxed and they start from, let's say, the shedding, um, abnormal, uh, heavy bleeding, more frequent bleeding, menorrhagia, menometrorrhagia, and uh, women who've been in menopause start getting their period again, uh, bleeding. From shedding or the vaccine or both? Um, from both. Okay. Because these people are not vax, living in a um, in a highly vaccinated community, and I knew when these peaks were coming is because when they pushed the boosters, I think the booster was like the really bad like nail in the coffin, as if not the, as if the first two were benign, but it was that booster that really got things going. So I think those GYN, the bleeding thing, got me really concerned, and I read the spike, you know, concentrating in the ovary, you know, and it likes fatty tissue and likes the bone marrow, likes the brain, likes. The Right. So on my Twitter feed today, I just reposted the really good review by Brett Weinstein, uh, Steve Kirsch, and Robert Malone on the Japanese biodistribution study, which clearly showed lipid nanoparticles accumulating over the course of 48 hours in the ovaries of mammals that were in this study. No messenger RNA involved, just lipid nanoparticles. And in a a paper from China before COVID-19, Uh, that I've also summarized multiple times, shows that the lipid nanoparticles do concentrate in the corpus luteum of the ovaries 
So it makes sense. Installation of the code for the spike protein, disrupting cells. I, I literally had my last guest on the McCullough Report from Greece indicated he thinks every cell that takes up the genetic material and expresses the spike protein is killed. Well, I, I feel that to be true too. I think that's actually accurate. And I just saw that liver study come out, which shows how it just affects uh, DNA production in the liver cells. And um, I was just talking to Stephanie Seneff about it. I haven't read the paper fully, so I don't want to talk about it because I didn't look at the data. Because I too no longer, like you said in your lecture today, Dr. McCullough, that indeed, forget their conclusion, look at the data. So now I have to go back and look at the data of all the studies. And I remember one of my heroes in the GMO world, Dr. Pusey said, the only thing you should focus on the studies is the data. That's true, and I, I think that's a wonderful uh, uh, advice you're hearing from Dr. Perrow in California, that uh, be cautious. In fact, I would say do not read the conclusions and don't read the media's conclusion over a study. Look at the primary data uh, because there is a bias clearly against treatment and there's a bias towards the vaccine. So, for instance, some papers, believe it or not, one was uh, published actually in the journal that's edited out of my office, the American Journal of Cardiology, where the paper starts out, the vaccines have saved millions of lives and they're this wonderful thing, but now we're gonna describe two cases of myocarditis in boys. And then conclusion, the vaccine should be continued. It's like, no, you, you know, we're describing heart damage. We have an entire uh, field called cardiology. Our whole field is dedicated on avoiding heart damage. Did you know the tiniest little heart attack, the tiniest little smidge of heart muscle that gets damaged, we fight viciously to protect it. We open arteries, we give cholesterol-lowering medicines, we do all these things. And here the children, by MRI, are developing substantial amounts of, the, the troponins are far higher than adult heart attack. The MRI regions, so two papers now by Shower and colleagues, highlight the fact that the damage in the heart's not going away, and it's above a threshold for sudden death risk. So in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, Fabry's disease, apical cardiomyopathies, 15% late gadolinium enhancement, meaning 15% of scar forming, is a big enough risk to trigger ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation and death, and these children are over that line. And Peter, thank you for saying that because when I started screaming, and I, I think I was screaming initially when we first started vaccinating kids back in June, and when I saw the first case of the myocarditis in kids, and I said, oh my God, stop it immediately because you're spot on because those parasites, as we know, die. And I want to make it clear that pediatric myocarditis is rare. I've been a PZR doc on the front line, and I think maybe one in 200,000 kids maybe had myocarditis, maybe, and that may be a low number. Maybe it was like one in a million, but I think it's one in 200,000. I'm usually post-viral. I think you hit it, actually. There's a paper by uh, Arolia and colleagues from Finland that looked at pediatric myocarditis and the estimates. It was published in uh, one of our circulation family of journals in cardiology. It's a really good uh, journal line. And the number they came up with was four cases per million per year. So that would be about one in every 250,000. So you're okay. right there. You're Phew. right there. Phew. Now, Kaiser Permanente, age 18 to 24, the number they estimate, over 500 cases of vaccine-induced myocarditis per million. And that's just what's clinically recognized. What really worries me is these children develop uh, fever, malaise, body aches. 
And in some of the case descriptions, they never develop chest pain or shortness of breath. And so now with the rash of young athletes, uh, it was sudden death. Uh, we had 15 tennis players uh, basically just drop out of the Miami Open tennis after they ma mandated the vaccine on all the players. Uh, there is a very famous Australian uh, footballer right now that's garnering a lot of attention now. Even the sports broadcasters are starting to mention whether or not this is the case. Uh, in your practice, what's the youngest age you've seen uh, myocarditis so far? So I think it was a 14-year-old because, you know, we start rolling out for 12 and up. And there was a 14-year-old and um, uh, chest pain. Um, he had some EKG changes. I was able to get a high-sensitivity CRP on him. It was 10, D-dimer, elevated. So a practice where I work, we sent him to... Troponin? A, uh, we didn't do a troponin at the time. We were just okay. getting some baseline lab. We sent him to the pediatric cardiologist, like stat, like, oh my God, gets the peds cardio because we're like, whoa, whoa. Sent him to a prestigious university setting. I'm not going to tell you which one because, uh, yeah, I'll get a lawsuit. But anyway, the pediatric cardiologist said, nope, it wasn't in vaccine induced and sent him home. Didn't do a workup. No echo, no workup, nothing. Kid comes back and then the mommy follows up with us and said, oh, his chest pain resolved. And so a lot of these kids have chest pain resolving, but we know they have uh, fibrosis. And what's the worst thing is scarring, cardiac scarring. As you mentioned, that is the absolute worst. And so a lot of kids have these fleeting symptoms, or as you say, no symptoms. And I can tell you, even when we refer them to pediatric cardiologists, they're not getting evaluated, they're not being taken seriously, and their exams can be completely normal. Normal BP, normal vital signs, normal pulse oximeters, normal exam. And so you have to study them. And a lot of times they don't want to study the kids. You have to do these baseline studies and look, and at least do an echo. At least do a stress echo if you're not going to do an MRI. I don't like the GAD studies in kids because I don't like gadolinium in children. The toxicity, renal toxic, I don't like it. So, yeah, you know, I don't I know, like, but I don't, you know, I know, we're, we're but really, I, we're really stuck I for know, the listeners out there. Uh, suspected myocarditis, history, physical, EKG. Please. Um, blood test. Now, since 2013, the American Heart Association has had recommendations for heart failure, and I extend it because myocarditis is a continuum of heart failure. I get a high-sensitivity cardiac troponin, yes. get a blood BNP or N-terminal pro-BNP, cardiac galactin-3, and ST2. These are available through Quest or LabCorp. They're affordable. Uh, they're in the guidelines. I order them because I can tell you sometimes they present late and we miss the troponin and just the BNP or ST2 is up and then I know the heart's taken a hit. Now we do get echo because it's non-invasive and if there is uh, evidence of reduced ejection fraction, evidence of incipient heart failure, uh, we in cardiology we use evidence-based uh, ACE inhibitors and beta blockers. Now in a, a woman, a childbearing potential, we can't use uh, the ACE inhibitors. There is a drug that we can extend down to the pediatric age range called Entresto. It's a combination of valsartan and sacubutrol. But I have found it's three months at a time that uh, the children uh, have a degree of recovery. If there's pleural pericardial symptoms, I use prednisone and colchicine. So I'm pretty aggressive in treating them. But I'm alarmed that the damage by MRI is not going away. The shower paper that just hit, it's on my Twitter feed, has followed up these same kids. Now we've had the two fatal cases reported mm -hmm. from Connecticut yeah. uh, that I presented today at the meeting. I'm worried, I'm deeply worried, and I have already testified uh, in the U.S. Senate that one case of myocarditis that's fatal is too many, and we will see more. Uh, 
let's finish up with just one other quick topic, and that has to deal with the issue of COVID in children. Mm -hmm. So what many people are saying is the vaccines don't resonate because COVID is like a mild cold. In fact, some kids have no symptoms at all. And that mild cold-like symptoms, even if there's upper respiratory symptoms, are easily treated with nebulizations and what have you. Is, has that been your experience so far? Is COVID a severe illness in children, in your experience, or is it a mild viral syndrome? I feel very well-versed to speak about this as a pediatrician, 40 years. And pediatricians, we're sort of like virologists, right? We spend our whole careers treating viral infections. It's a big part of what we do. I could retire and just treating viruses in kids, right? Millions of them. So let's talk about it. Now, in a practice where I work the past two years, we've had lots of COVID kids, not one sick kid. Yes, some occasionally a myomyalgia, low-grade fever, one or two of the flu-like symptoms, none worse than that. No MISC, no, no serious disease, and some kids were totally asymptomatic. Children are not many adults. Their immune systems are not the same. They still have a robust innate immune system. Many still have their thymus, the gland that sits behind their sternum. They have high levels of NK cells. They have high levels of interferon. They have the type of immune function that is that combats COVID. And if they still have a robust microbiome, and many kids still do before we start taking tons of antibiotics and killing our microbiome off, their immune function can handle the infection. 0.04% of children have issues with COVID. 99.06% of kids do well. Okay. Is it all kids? No. Occasionally, one will not do well. And the kids who have not done well, according to literature, have underlying comorbidities. And they often have immunodeficiency syndromes, etc. So the kids who did run into problems with MISC often had underlying issues, not all. So this should never have been given to kids. Cocooning or to protect adults is immoral, unethical. It doesn't make any sense to give our children who have no risk um, from this disease and to benefit adults is unconscionable. Let's be clear. So we, this was never a good thing. And let's just look back historically. If we look at the timeline of the introduction in 1998 of the rotavirus vaccine, Rotatech, there were about eight to 10 kids who developed interception where the, the intestine telescopes in on itself. They took that vaccine off immediately. Fast forward to now, we have kids dying with, with profound changes of fibrosis in their, in their hearts, and we have not pulled the vaccine off. So let's get to the real agenda of what's going here, because we are killing, maiming, destroying our youth, and this is unacceptable. So personally, and I say no vaccine immunomodulating gene therapy children and children at all, at any age, ever. Well, I'm going to let that be the last word. And that last strong word, uh, you've heard on the McCullough Report, a leading voice in pediatrics, Dr. Michelle Perot. She's made it clear, everybody, no vaccination in children under any circumstances. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us on the McCullough Report. Thank you for having me, Peter. My pleasure. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report.